Now, over these past several weeks, as we are in this break in the pastoral epistles, and soon we'll be going into the Christmas season, I have been bringing individual texts and have focused on encouragement for this congregation in a variety of ways. Uh, Jesus heals the leper. Uh, The immutability of God, I am the Lord, I change not. Christ stilling the storm last week. And this morning, the return of Christ and the comfort that it brings to his people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Many of you know that our brother Pat Foster has gone to be with the Lord this weekend. And uh, we anticipate a memorial service at 4 o'clock on Tuesday. Be listening for that. But how appropriate that we also see the rich encouragement of this text because of him and for many other reasons as well. Let's bow before reading 1 Thessalonians. Our Father, as we now come to this text, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired this word and given to us this Bible without error, will now open its meaning and apply it to our hearts. Despite differences of opinion that may exist between several of us on what precisely happens when Christ returns, may we all receive the comfort and encouragement of this text. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your people will become more holy having heard this text proclaimed. And we pray that lost people will come to faith in Christ before Jesus returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians. Hear our prayer, receive our worship, and we pray that we will give attention to your word from the heart. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13, this is the word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Early Christians were motivated by the truth that Jesus is coming again. It is plain from the New Testament that these early Christians really did live life in view of the promise of Christ's return, or at least that was the goal of the apostles in the apostolic churches. Modern Christians are impoverished to the degree to which we lack that focus and the motivations and encouragements that come from the realization that Jesus is going to return. Now in this sermon I hope to explain the text and to encourage us in a variety of ways to live with a focus on the future. Paul writes the Thessalonians because there is confusion in the church. 
they have lived with a focus on the return of Christ, but as they have done so, numbers of their fellow believers and loved ones have died. The question then that they are asking is, will those loved ones miss out? Uh, Will the bridal veil be exchanged for a shroud? And the Apostle Paul gives a resounding answer, no. No, says Paul, none of Christ's children will miss out when Christ returns. Now I hope that you hear that even now and receive the encouragement of it. Will you receive the encouragement of that truth and that reality now that sums up the text? No one will miss out. No believer will miss out when Christ returns. And Paul instructs them in the Christian's hope with two interconnected encouragements. Let's first then see as we come to the text the encouragement of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The encouragement of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's read again verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He begins with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that Jesus was not abandoned to the grave, that our Lord Jesus came into this world, that he obeyed the law that we broke, went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, and rose bodily from the grave is the Christian's great encouragement. That the same body that was put into the tomb was brought by the Father out of the tomb. That Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave. And so there's no place for hopelessness for believers since Jesus rose from the dead. A.T. Robertson comments on verse 14, Jesus is the connecting link for those that sleep and their resurrection. And that's a very fine statement because that's precisely how Paul the Apostle is thinking. Paul sees an inseparable connection between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the believer's body. That's why he can say in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. That word first fruits is a word taken from the Old Testament agricultural language in which there was brought to the temple the very first portion of an entirely anticipated crop. So the first portion that was brought meant that the harvest had begun. Paul says then, and this is his thinking here and in 1 Corinthians 15, that since Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of the Father, therefore the resurrection harvest has already begun. Not only does his resurrection guarantee ours, that's true, but the resurrection harvest has already begun. And that's why the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of sleep. Notice, for example, in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We see it again at the end of verse 15, and we see it again in the passage. The point is, he uses this metaphor of sleep. Now, he's not talking about soul sleep. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. The Bible doesn't teach the heresy of soul sleep. That when you die, your soul sleeps. 
The Bible doesn't teach that. Rather, it teaches to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our brother Pat, when he died, was immediately in the presence of Jesus. Immediately in the presence of the Lord. Why then does Paul speak of believers as sleeping? Paul means to teach us something about the Christian's body at death. What is he teaching? He is teaching this. The body of the Christian is said to sleep because sleeping people wake up. And when Christ comes again, he has promised to wake up his people whose bodies sleep in the grave. That's the reason for the metaphor. That death is not final for the Christian soul, of course, but not for the Christian's body either. And so there is no reason to be uneasy about your Christian loved ones. The resurrection will take place when Christ return, and his own resurrection is the beginning of the resurrection harvest. That leads us to a second thing we see the encouragement of Christ's return. So he encourages them with the resurrection of Jesus, and he encourages them, and we are encouraged, by the truth of Christ's return, about which we read in verses 15 and 16. Look at the text. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so he speaks of the coming of Christ and uses this familiar term, parousia. The reason he uses the term parousia is because this is the term that is most often used of the coming of some great dignitary. When a king would visit or an emperor would come, the term that would be used would be the word parousia. Well, the king is coming. (laughs) Jesus Christ is going to return. The royal visit awaits us. And his coming will demonstrate that the separation of body and soul are not permanent. Death is the prelude to resurrection for the believer. Christians who are alive when Jesus returns will not precede those who have died. They will be raised and reunited with their souls first. And so no Christian will be left out. No Christian will be left out. Those who have died will be the first to rise. This is wonderful truth. Now more specifically, what will happen when Jesus returns? That's the third thing we see in the text. What will actually happen? What will take place? Now the Apostle Paul does not give an exhaustive treatment of the return of Christ in this text because his purpose is to bring comfort and encouragement But he says some things that you can't miss. First of all, he says, Jesus will descend from heaven. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Jesus will come personally. He will come, to use the words of Ellicott, his own august personal presence. It will be an awesome, glorious moment when Jesus Christ comes in his personal visible return. The Lord himself will return, yes, attended by others, but he is not sending deputies, he is not sending appointees. The Lord Jesus himself will return. 
Here we have the real, personal, visible coming of Christ. I recognize that there is a segment of teachers in the church that say this is a secret rapture, but I see nothing secret about it. He comes with the voice of the archangel. Before that, there is his own voice of command. There's the trump of God. It sounds very visible to me. The real, personal, visible coming of Christ. Every eye will see him. So Jesus himself will descend from heaven. And then Jesus comes with a mighty summons. We read in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. A shout of command. Think of Jesus before the tomb of Lazarus. There he was brought to the tomb of Lazarus and he wept. And he showed his love and compassion. And he spoke and he said, Lazarus, come forth. I've told you before, a lot of the old theologians used to say if he hadn't been specific, then everyone in their graves in that cemetery would have come forth. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. Well, he comes with a shout of command and will raise his people from the dead. Now think of something greater, because Jesus actually describes this in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. When he says in verse 25 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so Jesus speaks of that loud authoritative cry and call that will bring about the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the day in which he returns. Of course, Paul is focusing upon the resurrection of the believer in this passage. The shout of command with which Jesus comes also points to the fact that the return of Christ will be public and open. And Jesus returns with a sovereign summons. The word kaluo is usually a word that is used of a military command. In other words, it's a command that no one can disobey. It's a command that must be obeyed. Jesus came the first time in deep humility. He does not come the second time in deep humility. He comes as the conquering king. But also there is the voice of the archangel. Some commentators think this means simply that his voice is an archangel-like voice. But as I read the text, it seems to me you have three things here. You have Jesus' shout of command. You have the voice of the archangel accompanying his. And you have the trump of God. Michael in Jude chapter 9, of course, is the archangel who wars against Satan. And I always think of Jacob Epstein's bronze sculpture of the archangel Michael defeating Satan that's at Coventry Cathedral. But Paul is telling us that this voice is a voice of victory in the last day. So are you listening for that shout of command? And are you listening for the voice of the archangel that will joyfully and victoriously accompany your saviors? And then we read of the trump that will sound again in verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet will sound. Now, of course, this should bring to mind the Old Testament. 
Because in the Old Testament, the trump was used in military campaigns, in Old Testament warfare. Uh, the trumpet used in the fall, trumpets that were used in the fall of Jericho, the trumpets that announced the year of Jubilee as well, so that the trumpets were announcing freedom, and the trumpets announced deliverance and conquest and redemption. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. Roman soldiers used trumpets to strike tent, to form lines, to announce a march. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse uh, 52, we read, The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And so the trump sounds the final victory. The trump sounds the everlasting jubilee of which Leviticus 25 was only a type and a shadow. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And then what? The dead in Christ will rise first, we read at the end of verse 16. So he comes with a resurrected people. Do not worry about your Christian dead missing out, the Apostle Paul is saying to these Thessalonian believers. They have priority over those who remain alive at Christ's coming. Their souls will be reunited to their resurrection bodies as Jesus returns in conquest. They will rise before the living believers are changed. And who will be raised? Well, the Bible teaches, as I have mentioned from John 5, the general resurrection of the dead. But here he focuses upon the redeemed. Believers and unbelievers die. And when believers and unbelievers die, everything looks the same. You take a believer's body and you put it in the coffin and an unbeliever's body and you place it in the coffin and everything looks alike. But they are not the same. The unbeliever's soul is in eternal torment. The believer's soul is rejoicing before the throne. You know, when we weep at a graveside service uh, for a believer in Jesus, why are we weeping? We're not weeping because your godly mother is now before the throne of God, are you? You're not weeping because uh, that believer is in the presence of Christ, are you? No, you're weeping because the body shows the results of the fall and is placed in the grave. And there is this unnatural separation of body and soul. And because you will not hear those loving words or feel that loving touch until the resurrection, you genuinely grieve because of death, but not because of the soul, but because the body is placed in the grave and awaits the resurrection from the dead. So the believer's body is in union with Christ, and that is the great difference between the unbeliever in the coffin and the believer in the coffin. The believer has been purchased by the blood of Christ, body and soul. And his body is as much in union with Jesus as his soul. And the believer will rise incorruptible, and we will be like the Savior in his resurrection body. Use your imaginations, people of God. Think of this. Can you hear this and not be moved within your souls? Think about it. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and those old moss-covered graves will open, and the dead will come forth. And those who have been, been uh, buried at sea will come out of the sea. 
and those whose ashes have been spread abroad. That's no hindrance to the Son of God who raises bodies to life. Jesus Christ will bring his people to himself. They will meet him in the air. Millions will stand up out of their graves. When we were in York in England recently noticing outside the city walls where during the Black Plague bodies had been buried outside the city walls and I couldn't help but think of the resurrection at the last day. Yes, they were outside the city walls but not out of the sight of the Savior. What a miracle awaits us. And so the next miracle that the church awaits and has reason to expect is the return of Jesus Christ with his shout of command raising his people from the grave. And then he tells us in verse 17, the church meets the Lord in the air. Verse 17, then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now the verb that is used here is the verb to seize. Uh, Latinized, that's where the, the term that's familiar to you as rapture comes from. But it really means carry away by force. It's speaking of divine agency. And God's people meet the Savior in the air. And remember, Ephesians 2.2 says that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. This is demonic turf. What we're being told here, among other things, is the victory is complete. And then he doesn't give us more of the sequence. We can say more as we read the Bible and study it carefully. The point is... He wants you to remember, so you will forever be with the Lord. Now, from other scriptures, we know that the judgment will take place. The evil one is destroyed forever. Actually, this word even for meet, this word meeting, apentesis is a meeting is a word that was typically used of those who would go out and meet a dignitary and come back with him into the city. We can anticipate then the Savior returning. His church meets him in the air. There's the renovation of the uh, old earth. There is the new Jerusalem that comes down. Of course, the judgment has taken place. All of these things we know. But his purpose here is not to answer Questions that arise from curiosity. His purpose is to comfort and to encourage. So you may say to me, Pastor, sometimes it's hard to live in this reality. And to some of you are honest, you might even say, sometimes it's difficult for me even to believe that it's true. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're a believer, you do. There's no one who believes in Christ that doesn't believe that he rose bodily from the dead. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul's logic is this. We are in union with Christ, are we not? Christ's resurrection from the dead, therefore, means that our resurrection is absolutely certain. Believing the resurrection of Christ from the dead leads to belief in the return of Christ and the resurrection at the last day. Now that's briefly what the text teaches. 
But let's move on to another point. The fourth thing, the encouragement of Christ's coming. In other words, how do we apply it? Because you see, he says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now the word here that is used for encourage is translated comfort in the authorized version, and undoubtedly he does comfort, but the word here, parakaleo, means something more than comfort. That's the word to call alongside. It means to help by exhortation, to encourage. It's even used of advocacy. Paul's words were intended to bring encouragement. Those who die before the coming of the Lord will be raised when he returns. They will not miss out. And he wants believers to be encouraged by this. Or what are ways in which we can be encouraged by the truth that Jesus will come again? Allow me to give you several ways. First of all, we should be encouraged by the truth and reality of the return of Christ because life and death for the Christian are filled with hope. The return of Christ, the resurrection means that life and death for the Christian is filled with hope. J.B. Lightfoot says this in a wonderful way. The contrast between the gloomy despair of the heathen and the triumphant hope of the Christian mourner is nowhere more forcibly brought out than by their monumental inscriptions. He means inscriptions on monuments in the Roman world. The contrast of the tombs, for instance, in the Appian Way, above and below ground, has often been dwelt upon. On the one hand, there is the dreary wail of despair, the effect of which is only heightened by the pomp of outward splendor from which it issues. On the other, there is the exulting psalm of hope shining the more brightly in an ill-written, ill-spelt record amidst the darkness of subterranean caverns. And maybe I should interpret Lightfoot's words a little. What he's saying is, if you're on the Appian Way, you'll find these grand burial places with these inscriptions that are absolutely hopeless. But if you go into the catacombs where poor Christians were buried, even their ill spelling shows that their life and death is filled with hope. Because you see, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you have no hope. Let me say, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you can only have a sure hope of life everlasting in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And we call you to put your faith in him. Well, that leads us to think of this. Life is not meaningless. To live this way, to live as if life is meaningless is pagan, not Christian. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ is risen from the dead, and a future has been given with the past. And so certain is it that Peter writes of it in this way in 1 Peter 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that the believer, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And that inheritance is kept for you, believer, and you, believer, are kept 
for the inheritance. But another encouragement that comes is that the believer need not fear death. The believer need not fear death. And since the fall of man, everyone fears death. I don't believe anyone when he tells me he has no fear of death, naturally. You may cover it up in a variety of ways. You might become a suicide bomber and fool yourself into thinking that you can go to paradise by murdering other people. But everyone, in one way or another, has a fear of death. The Christian need not fear death. We're apprehensive about going through an experience that we've never before been through. But we have no fear of the result. Because Jesus has come, and he died for our sins, and he paid the penalty, and he rose from the dead. We have no fear of death. And no fear for our bodies either. Not ultimately. And this means, if I may give a third application... We need not be overburdened with the loss of our Christian loved ones who have died. The the important word there is over. We should not be overly burdened. Verse 13 tells us, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Paul did not say you should not grieve. It is right to grieve. Death is the result of the fall of man. It is not natural. You should grieve, but not hopelessly. And so we should not be overly burdened with loss. It is right to grieve, but not as hopeless pagans. And then fourthly, another encouragement that the New Testament consistently brings as we think of the return of Jesus Christ is holiness of life. A life that pursues holiness in light of the truth and reality that Christ is coming again. We could look at 1 John 3, 3 or 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 and following, but really you don't have to go out of 1 Thessalonians to find it. For example, in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Or turning to the next chapter, over from chapter 4, chapter 5. Notice how he begins in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So he speaks of the judgment that is coming when Christ comes again. But then he goes on. In verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another. He says for the second time, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. 
What does Paul mean? You are children of light. You live because Christ has been raised from the dead. You are Christians. And if that is true, that my mind will be absolutely pure when Jesus comes again, then I want to strive for purity of mind now. If it's true that my hands will be used only for holy ends when Jesus comes again, then I want to strive that my hands are used for holy ends now. If it's true that my feet are going to walk on pavement of gold, think of that. Gold is just pavement in heaven. (laughs) If that's true, then I want my feet to walk to His honor and to His glory now. Don't you see the point? That's what Paul is saying. In light of the return of Christ, pursue and seek holiness of life, living in view of the momentous event of Jesus' return. So are you pursuing holiness of life? Every generation of Christians should live as if the return of Christ could be in our generation. Whether it happens in our generation is not the point. The encouragement of holiness should be ours in every generation. Another application, though, is the encouragement to pray for the return of Christ. Now, we end our services here at Covenant Presbyterian Church with a congregational, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we are echoing the many come quickly references that we find in the book of Revelation. Why should we be encouraged to pray for the return of Jesus? Let me give you some reasons. We should pray for the return of Christ because Christ's coming will bring visible glory to him for which every believer should long. We hear his name taken in vain and we are so hurt by it. We are so deeply concerned that the world is turning a deaf ear to the gospel now. Uh, It is so painful to see that truth has fallen in the streets in our country. But let me tell you, my friend, the day is coming when Jesus will return. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every Christian longs for that glory, that visible glory that will be seen in the sun on that day. That's one reason for which to pray for the return of Christ. Another reason to pray for the return of Christ is because Christ's coming will bring the church to the end of her suffering. I have an article here I'm going to read some snippets from. This is from um, the Wall Street Journal. And... uh, title of it is The Bible in the Bird's Nest. Um, Elder Montgomery gave it to me. Let me read you some things. This month, a handful of North Koreans were caught with Bibles which are outlawed by the communist regime. The Christians were among a group of 80 North Koreans who were executed by firing squad on Sunday, November 3rd. Now, this is not years ago. This is this month, folks. This month. The executions were public and took place in seven cities across the country. In the port city of Wonsan, eight people were tied to a stake at a local stadium, had their heads covered with white sacks, and were shot with a machine gun. 10,000 spectators, including children, were forced to witness the executions. Persecuting Christians is a Kim family tradition. 
North Korea's young dictator, Kim Jong-un, is the third generation of dictators to kill, torture, and imprison Koreans of faith. Like his father, Kim Jong-il, and his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, he understands the threat that Christianity poses to his rule. With its message of individual freedom, Christianity offers a potent alternative to the Kim family cult of personality. We are told that families of victims were dispatched to political prison camps after those deaths, a move in keeping with the regime's long-standing policy of punishing three generations of a family for one member's transgression. Most inmates do not survive long in North Korean prison camps. Kim Il-sung mostly eradicated Christianity from North Korea in the 1950s and 1960s through a brutal policy of murdering religious leaders, imprisoning believers who would not recant, and banishing others to remote regions. Yet now Christianity is on the rise. North Koreans are learning about the religion from countrymen who flee to China and receive help from Christians or from Bibles smuggled into the country by foreign missionaries or dropped by balloons launched from the south. The only worship permitted in North Korea is that of the Kim family dictators. In South Korea, the Korean Institute for National Unification publishes an annual book-length report on human rights in the North based on interviews with North Koreans who have escaped. In this year's edition, numerous refugees describe the regime's persecution of Christians. One spoke of a family that hid their Bible in a magpie's nest perched in a tree near their home. The family had been Christian since before the founding of the communist regime and had worshipped in secret for more than half a century. When a neighbor cut a branch off the tree and their Bible was discovered, three generations of family disappeared. In the refugees' words, the Christians were sent to a place of no return. Since Kim Jong-un took power in 2011, gullible outside observers have fooled themselves into believing that the Swiss-educated, basketball-loving dictator is a kinder, gentler Kim. But this month's mass executions leave no doubt that Kim Jong-un is playing by his father's playbook. Wall Street Journal, November 14, 2013. And let me tell you, I am sure those believers in Jesus, often those gulags, are praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why should we pray for the return of Christ? Because we're praying for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that the church will come to the end of her suffering. And we should pray for the return of Christ because Christ's coming will mean that the lost are saved, that the last of God's elect will have been brought to faith in Jesus. And I'm happy Sunday after Sunday to preach to you a sure eternal salvation and that God's people will be saved. And Christ will not return before the last one of his chosen is brought to faith in Christ. But then let me give you another encouragement. The encouragement that we find at the end of verse 17, that we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's the encouragement that God will keep his promise of eternal fellowship with him. Verse 17 tells us always, forever, we will be forever with the Lord. That was Paul's longing for eternal fellowship with Christ. Is that your longing 
Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You know these hymn lines, since Christ and we are one, why should we doubt and fear? If he in heaven fixed his throne, he'll fix his members there. Forever with the Lord. And will you please take notice of this encouragement? The dead in Christ shall rise. And don't miss those little words. In Christ. So important in Paul's epistles. Union with Jesus Christ. Inseparable union with Christ. We are in Christ. Mysterious words, but powerful words of union with Christ. That's why we will be raised, because we are in union with the risen Lord. And that means this. That when we stand by the grave of our beloved Christian dead whose bodies are asleep because they will be awakened. Christ is not going to come again, raise the dead, and then say, oh, I forgot one. When Jesus comes, there is not one atom of his people's bodies that will be forgotten. For not only is the soul purchased by the blood of Jesus, the body is purchased by the blood of Jesus. The entire person is redeemed. So I ask you, are you going to do what the text calls upon you to do? Will you be encouraged by these things? And will you encourage others with these things? Will you encourage the Fosters this week? Will you encourage the Oats? Will you encourage... We could go on and on. But will you receive the encouragement of these truths in your own heart and in your own life? Now to conclude our thoughts, let's read another of Paul's passages on the return of Christ and so be mightily encouraged. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I read without comment 1 Corinthians 15 beginning at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen and amen.